0: Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for January 26th, 2018. I'm Brian Cardile. This is The Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient appellate and constitutional law questions. This week, we'll hear from Peter Altman. He's a partner at Aiken Gump in Los Angeles and a former senior counsel in the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. He'll join us to discuss a case just granted review by the U.S. Supreme Court that stands to meaningfully impact the way in which the SEC goes about enforcing securities laws. The matter specifically questions whether the agency's administrative law judges, whom the SEC often tasks with resolving enforcement matters rather than pursuing such disputes in federal court, are officers under the ambit of the U.S. Constitution's Appointments Clause. If indeed they are, the fact that the SEC selected those judges not in accordance with the Appointment Clause's specific provisions might render, as suspect, the judge's decisions in many SEC enforcement matters dating back several years and could leave pending matters in a very uncertain state. Interestingly, the SEC's defense of its less-than-formal judge-appointing practice, which the lower D.C. circuit upheld, was abandoned, with the presidential administration turnover. And the government, and its response to the petition for cert here, agreed with the petitioner that the SEC's judges are officers and should be formally appointed perhaps more interesting than whether the Supreme Court deems the SEC's ALJs are officers bound by the Appointments Clause, as it seems fairly likely it will, is whether and to what extent the, the Court's rulings might bear on the administrative enforcement decisions rendered by the ALJs and a number of other agencies, like FERC or the Social Security Administration, and, and whether a ruling might question the use of administrative logic is altogether. But before we hear from Peter, let's get to our opening briefs. Having so far maintained a fairly slow pace of rendering opinions. The Supreme Court issued a batch of them Monday, the first significant bundle of rulings that weren't per curiam decisions. In one case, D.C. police had responded to a raucous party wherein a sparsely furnished and reportedly vacant district home had been transformed into essentially a strip club casino hybrid. Partygoers had defiled the nearly barren house into disarray and police after trying to ascertain the home's owner or lawful tenant, and receiving conflicting stories from guests arrested the partygoers for unlawful entry. The D.C. District Court held that a group of party guests who sued for false arrest were entitled to nearly $1 million in damages because the police lacked probable cause to arrest them, not knowing or having reason to believe that the partygoers knew they were in the home without permission. But Justice Thomas, writing for a unanimous court, said that the squalid and spartan state of the home made it apparent enough to the officers that the house was not owned or legally occupied by any of the partygoers, and that it was reasonable for the officers to presume the guests knew they were not on the premises legally. Thomas critiqued the D.C. Circuit for taking an overly narrow view of probable cause rather than looking at the the broader totality of the circumstances type picture. Raised in the appeal also was the question of whether the officers were entitled to qualified immunity for their actions. Of course court siding with the officers on the question of probable cause didn't need to reach this issue, but weighed in anyways, finding that with no relevant cases exactly on the point, the officers here would have been immune based on the doctrine, even if they did lack probable cause for their actions. Interestingly, Justice Thomas made no reference to his concurrence from last term, urging the court to reconsider the basis for the qualified immunity doctrine. But Justice Ginsburg, in a concurrence, voiced skepticism about a different bit of precedent, that of the foundational and controversial Wren v. United States decision, which held that an arresting officer's state of mind is irrelevant to a reviewing court where probable cause exists for that officer's actions. That decision raised concerns that it, in effect, legitimized pretextual detentions executed by bad faith officers using the cover of probable cause. Ginsburg said the court's jurisprudence set the balance too heavily in favor of police to the detriment. Fourth Amendment protections, and that court should be able to consider an officer's potentially malicious mental state, even where probable cause ostensibly licenses his actions. Though, with her concurrence being a lone one, not even joined by Justice Sotomayor, who penned a separate concurrence, it doesn't seem the court is too keen on reviewing Wren anytime soon. Another unanimous ruling penned by Justice Sotomayor came in National Association of Manufacturers versus the Department of Defense, which, know that lawsuits challenging the government's conception of the waters of the United States, and thus the scope of the federal government's jurisdiction under the Clean Water Act, must be brought in federal district court rather than directly in the courts of appeal. The specific lawsuit here was brought against Barack Obama's 2015 Clean Water Rule, which refined the statutory definition of the waters of the United States, a move that elicited more than 100 challenges. The basis for the dispute is a portion of the Clean Water Act that requires original appellate jurisdiction over seven types of Clean Water Act challenges, the ruling here was a straightforward exercise in statutory interpretation. The government had alternatively argued that two of the seven categories encompass the challenges at issue one, those categories relating to effluent limitations and another relating to discharge permitting decisions, but the unanimous panel said the rules defining waters of the United States are neither effluent limitations nor the they decisions either granting or denying permits, even though the waters of the U.S. definition could indirectly bear on both. The court did note that the statute's application yielded some counterintuitive results. For example, nationwide rules like the definition of the waters of the U.S. being litigated in disparate district courts around the country while individual permitting decisions likely impacting local parties must be brought before federal appellate courts. The scheme also creates a likelihood that distinct definitions of the waters of the United States will arise from various district court challenges, but nonetheless, the court stressed it wasn't its role to rewrite the statute and rendered its unanimous ruling. One case that did split the court came in Artis First, the District of Columbia, and that 5-4 ruling gives us a bit of a preview as to the contours of the battle lines the court will be continuing to draw over the issue of federalism. This case was another one involving statutory interpretation here relating to statutes of limitation and tolling periods. The statute at issue is the familiar one providing supplemental subject matter jurisdiction to federal courts over state claims the courts generally couldn't hear except for their close connection with federal jurisdiction-worthy claims. Of course, often when the federal jurisdiction-worthy causes of action are dismissed, they'll usually follow the state claims, leaving plaintiffs scrambling to refile in state court, provided the pertinent statute of limitations has not lapsed. That subject matter jurisdiction statute here provides that the relevant state statute of limitation shall be told while claims are pending in federal court, and it provides plaintiffs with a grace period of 30 days to file in state court after a federal form dismissal here, as you may have gathered, the plaintiff's claim after being dismissed from the federal court was filed in state court outside of the 30-day grace period, but within the state's statute of limitation, if that statute was viewed as having been paused for the pendency of the federal action. Indeed, Chief Justice Roberts and the court's liberal bloc subscribed to just such an interpretation, writing, for the five-justice majority of Justice Ginsburg reason that the term used in the statute, Toll, has generally been interpreted to mean to suspend or hold in abeyance, and noted that SCOTUS has tended to use as synonyms the terms suspend and toll, but Justice Gorsuch, joined by Justices Thomas, Alito, and Kennedy, penned the dissent, saying the statute meant to allow only for a 30-day grace period and not to pause a state's limitations law for the often years-long duration of federal suits. Gorsuch cited some fairly arcane 17th-century common law to bolster his point and parsed very finely the statute's text, but more broadly, he voiced concerns over the proper balance of federalism, writing that the majority's approach unduly intrudes upon a traditional state function, and he said the court has taken no small departure from our foundational principles of federalism. This then provides a better understanding, both of his unique writing style and his determination, along with a certain cohort of the court, to vindicate a vision of Federalist principles that emphasize a limited national government of enumerated circumscribed powers. At the appellate level, the Ninth Circuit Thursday declined to rehear on a free speech and free expression case brought by a former public high school coach, Joseph Kennedy, who had challenged his removal by the school over his practice of leading team prayers and kneeling on the field's 50-yard line after games. A unanimous panel had rejected the coach's arguments, finding that in his official role he spoke as a public employee and not as a private citizen, making it permissible for the district court to limit his speech here. No from the on rehearing denial were voiced, making it seem but less probable this case might reach the High Court, though Kennedy's legal team has signaled its intention to seek cert. In perhaps its most notable ruling of the week, the appeals court reversed a nationwide class action settlement that a central district judge had approved between a large cohort of plaintiffs complaining over Misleading claims automakers Hyundai and Kia made regarding their cars' fuel efficiency. In unwinding the class's settlement and the class certification order, the majority of a split panel voiced concern that the district court didn't inquire diligently enough as to Rule 23's predominance requirement. Noting, for instance, that plaintiffs that bought used vehicles may well not have been aware of or misled by the, the automakers' inflated fuel efficiency numbers, the majority headed by J- Judge Ikuta also worried that varying state laws, bearing on the different nationwide plaintiffs, weren't duly considered at the class certification stage. Of course, that latter piece could could prove fairly detrimental to the hopes of other similar nationwide class actions. Earlier this month, the Supreme Court added a dozen cases to a docket already loaded with blockbusters. Among them is Lucia versus the SEC, which the method the commission used to appoint its administrative law judges was challenged as violative of the Constitution's appointment clause. The question is one with wide-ranging impacts on past pending and future securities enforcement actions, and here to explain it for us is a former senior counsel with the SEC, now a partner with Aiken Gump in Los Angeles, Peter Altman. Peter, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Okay, uh, maybe to start out here, we have the case Lucia versus the SEC, or it could be Lucia, I'm not, not sure, but it, it regards the Appointments Clause of the, the Constitution. I suppose maybe we could uh, begin with the Appointments Clause. Could you briefly out for me uh, what that clause is? And and I guess particularly focusing on um, the second portion of the clause, I th- I think maybe the more familiar element of the Appointments Clause is uh, the, the first part dealing with the requirement that the Senate must uh, provide advice and, and consent to certain presidential nominees, but there's a, a second piece of it more at issue here for sort of lesser officers. Um, what what does that uh, clause provide for, and sort of what are the, the constitutional functions that, that it serves? Why is it important?
1: So the appointments clause arises under Article 2 of the Constitution, and as you mentioned, it provides uh, a number of different uh, restrictions on appointments of officers, but the key one that really uh, is at issue in the Lucia case is that uh, the Congress may by law vest the appointment of such inferior officers as they think proper in the president alone, in the courts of law, or in the heads of departments. Mm -hmm. And so really what this advances is a principle of separation of powers And it essentially limits, as it pertains to inferior officers, the universe of individuals who are eligible to appoint these people. And the idea is really it prevents one branch from encroaching on another branch's appointment power, as well as preventing the diffusion of the appointment power.
0: So here, the specific actors at the center of this case are administrative law judges within the SEC. Um, and so potentially their their appointments were, were not quite in accordance with the appointments clause so the, the petitioners say and as we'll get to um, the, the government concedes um, I suppose maybe we could start with how how did the SEC appoint those uh, ALJs at issue and, and what functions do do they serve? perhaps also worth worth noting here at at the top. I do understand that, that the SEC's ability to, to pursue enforcement enforcement matters sort of uh, in the administrative setting did, did grow after the passage of, of the, the Dodd-Frank Act. Is that is that right?
1: So that's correct. Um, and we'll get to that in just a second. But to, to lay the foundation, historically, SEC administrative law judges, ALJs, uh, were chosen through a pretty typical merit selection hiring process by SEC staff from a pool of candidates identified by the Office of Personnel Management. So a process not atypical to how a line-level enforcement lawyer or uh, SEC examiner or policymaker would be hired. Uh, critically, SEC ALJs historically were not appointed by the commission as a whole and the commission is made up of... Five people uh, that are appointed with the advice and consent of the Senate, or nominated with the advice and consent of the Senate uh, by the um, by the President. So, um, the SEC, getting to your point about Dodd Frank, the SEC has statutory authority to pursue a wide range of violations of federal securities laws, and they can do so by filing suit in federal district court, just like any other plaintiff, or they could institute a civil administrative action through their administrative uh, law form. By SEC rule, the SEC, and that's really the commission, delegated uh, this authority to conduct administrative hearings to administrative law judges, these ALJs. And their primary function was to make uh, what is called an initial decision in any proceeding, um, and essentially hold bench trials as a means of getting to that initial decision. So they preside over a hearing. They can administer oaths. They can authorize the issuance of subpoenas. You know, put have witnesses appear, rule on legal motions, uh, and then come up with this initial decision. Uh, that gets actually then set for review by the Commission and so it's a bit of a procedural uh, path here but this was sort of a key point in the litigation that has now led to the Supreme Court looking at the issue. These ALJs had their initial decision but the Commission, the SEC retained the discretion to review that initial decision either on its own initiative or upon a petition for review filed by either of the litigants at the initial hearing stage. And so if there was no review of the initial decision undertaken within a certain amount of time, the commission would simply issue an order that would in effect ratify that decision and the initial decision would become deemed the action of the commission. Now, Dodd-Frank expanded the SEC Division of Enforcement's ability to seek uh, remedies from people through the administrative form. Historically, the administrative form uh, was reserved for people who essentially worked within the regulated industries that the SEC oversees. Mm -hmm. However, Dodd-Frank expanded the jurisdiction of that tribunal to cover anyone, the SEC Division of Enforcement could pursue really anyone it wished to, and these could include public company directors and officers, individuals accused of insider trading, uh, people outside of the regulated industries that the SEC oversees.
0: Okay, so obviously that uh, that expansion of scope of the SEC's ambit. Uh, makes this question more salient. And we'll dig more into the point that you raised about just how sort of final uh, the rulings are by these AL, ALJs, important, as you say. Um, but first, quickly, maybe um, you know, the, the question here is obviously a, a legal one. But as to this particular enforcement action, if just uh, to set a bit of context, what, what is going on here in um, the, the matter that was brought against uh, the uh, petitioner here, uh, Mr. Lucia?
1: So he was a investment advisor and um, was essentially investigated by the division of enforcement um, and then a litigation commenced in the administrative law form against this uh, Lucia um, which led to a uh, ALJ initial decision in December of 2013 that subjected him to a lifetime ban from participating in the investment advisory industry, and ordered him to pay a substantial monetary penalty in connection with claims that he had misled investors about the effectiveness of his somewhat colorfully named "buckets of money" retirement strategy. <laughs> and so, as uh, as I laid out before, his normal path of appeal is to go to the commission itself. Um, now. Uh, many people during uh, the last few years, as this issue wound its way through the courts, said, well, that's a very odd appellate route to go to the body that authorized the enforcement action that was brought against the person in the first place and appeal that uh, whether that enforcement action was actually um, appropriate in effect. Now, um, none of those arguments really uh, had traction, the the sort of fairness aspect of all of this. But mm-hmm. what did get traction ultimately is this argument that ALJs were, in fact, inferior officers under the appointments clause, and that um, because they were hired through a merit-based uh, selection rather than by Uh, appointment of the by the president or the head of the SEC or a court of law uh, they were serving in violation of the appointments clause so in September 2015 the the Commission again that first level of appeal from the administrative law form denied Lucia's appeal and rejected his uh, arguments under the appointments clause Lucia appealed his decision to the D.C. Circuit, which issued an opinion in August 2016, affirming the Commission's decision uh, that its ALJs were really just employees, not subject to the Appointments Clause. Lucia tried to get the D.C. Circuit to review that decision on banc. That review was denied. However, in January 2018, as you said, uh, the Supreme Court granted cert.
0: One one more point on that D.C. Circuit uh, ruling. What, I suppose, was the the, the main reason that the the appeals court, uh, on this question of of whether the ALJs qualify as officers within the the aegis of the appointments clause, um, why why was it their view that they they are not officers and more so uh, just employees?
1: So the panel of the D.C. Circuit really focused on what it is that these ALJs do. And uh, in that decision, the panel really relied on what it saw as binding circuit case law, the Landry v. FDIC decision that established that the power to issue final decisions was dispositive in distinguishing inferior officers from employees. And the panel held that because ALJ decisions were not binding until after the Commission had issued that final order, that the ALJs were not issuers of quote-unquote final decisions and were thus simply government employees not governed by the appointments clause. Now many commentators um, saw this as really kind of a classic form over substance argument Mm -hmm. given the fact that the Commission just so regularly Affirmed the decision of the ALJ either through the passage of time and no one uh, appealing the the ALJ decision, or upon some appeal uh, by usually the respondent in the administrative proceeding, um, rejecting their appellate arguments.
0: Maybe just to, to tease that out a bit, you, you mentioned it earlier as well that the, the sort of the ratification or the affirmance of an ALJ's decision by by the overall commission making the decision final um, seemed relatively assured in most cases um, and and more generally just the fact that enforcement matters were, were done within the SEC as opposed to in federal court tended to um, sort of give a home field advantage to uh, the SEC
1: well that um, that was certainly that was certainly the popular view that uh, there was a home field advantage for the division of enforcement to, in effect, walk down the hall to the courtroom uh, of the administrative law judge that maybe they, you know, shared lunch with in the cafeteria as a sort of exaggerated metaphor. Um, And I think that there were Plenty of statistical studies done regarding the division enforcement success rate in that form versus uh, some rather high-profile losses that the division, well, really it was the SEC experienced in federal court before juries. But again, back to that kind of fairness point that I alluded to, none of those arguments really caught, uh, had any traction before any judges. It was really this rather... Uh, Esoteric argument under the appointments clause uh, of the Constitution.
0: Yeah, this one this point does seem a bit more technical um, than that, more sort of due process based idea. Um, then one one other thing, looking in in the background here, is a, a Supreme Court decision that seems to be fairly similar to the one that was before the the D.C. Circuit and and now is before. Let's go to this called Freytag Freitag versus Commissioner, um, and, and there. Uh, a different but, but fairly uh, analogous set of administrative law judges at issue were deemed officials under the appointments clause by by the high court. How did the D.C. Circuit distinguish um, that case from the matter before it?
1: It again related to um, this question of finality of the uh, hearing officer's decision. And so, just to unpack the facts of Freitag a little bit, uh, in that case. Um, Several defendants including uh, this individual Freitag were charged with using a tax shelter to avoid paying roughly one and a half billion dollars in taxes. Their case ended up being heard by a special trial judge um, who eventually drafted an opinion unfavorable to their position and that decision was reviewed and adopted by this chief tax judge. Freitag appealed the case arguing that Congress's decision to allow this chief tax judge to assign complex tax cases to a special trial judge violated the appointments clause. Um, And he essentially advanced the same argument that Lucia was advancing, that these special trial judges were inferior officers. Now, the rationale um, that the when the case ended up at the Supreme Court, the rationale that they used isn't totally applicable to what happened with Lucia, to the procedural posture of who these uh, special trial judges were versus what the SEC ALJs do. It's a little bit different, but, but the key point here was that uh, the Supreme Court, which held that these special trial judges were, in fact, inferior officers. Um, focused on the idea that um, any appointee exercising significant authority, those were the buzzwords, pursuant to the laws of the United States, is an officer of the United States and must therefore be appointed in compliance with the appointments clause. Now, the DC Circuit in Lucia essentially looked at the Freitag opinion And they differentiated these special trial judges by emphasizing that those people could actually exercise final decision-making power in some cases, but SEC ALJs could essentially never exercise final decision-making power given the role of the commission in reviewing their decisions. Whether it was a rubber stamp, again, simply by the passage of time or upon appeal, um, the case didn't – the initial decision didn't become, quote unquote, final until the commission – it passed through the commissioner's offices.
0: In in so, sort of reasoning in that manner, the D.C. Circuit does seem to avoid a little bit squarely dealing with um, sort of the, the language and the standards set up by the Supreme Court that – you know, the more general one that if a, uh, an actor has significant authority, then that's a, that trips the appointments clause requirements. And and the D.C. Circuit ruling also created a, a circuit split where the Tenth Circuit, dealing with with the same question as to SEC ALJs, um, found they they were um, officers under the appointments clause, and, and and did so sort of based on that Freitag significant authority type standard. Right.
1: That's correct. And so. The 10th Circuit, when faced with a a similar issue on appeal, in this case known as Bandemir, came out essentially directly opposite to Lucia, holding that ALJs were inferior officers who therefore needed to be appointed pursuant to the appointments clause. Um, And the 10th Circuit there reasons that the... Uh, Too much weight was being placed on this question of finality uh, when evaluating whether an ALJ was an inferior officer versus a mere employee. And the key part of the Tenth Circuit's opinion was that the ALJs exercised considerable power and discretion in shaping the administrative record that was ultimately put before the SEC, and so it was that considerable power and discretion that the Tenth Circuit saw as being sufficient to confer status as an inferior officer, and thus that the appointments clause needed to be complied with. And in that case, because the ALJ had not been constitutionally appointed pursuant to the appointments clause, uh, the Tenth Circuit held that the sanctions against this gentleman, Bandemir had to be overturned. Now, uh, Something that came out of Bandemir um, was some fanfare about the rather strong dissent in that uh, panel's decision, which noted the potentially massive ramifications of the majority's decision, which put, as the dissent saw it, all federal administrative law judges, including the more than 1,500 Social Security Administration ALJs. At risk of being declared inferior officers, which the natural output of would throw all of those uh, old opinions into question. And I think we'll get into that in in just a little bit.
0: Yeah, that really sets up well, the the conversation a lot about just the stakes of the case, because as it's laid out, it sounds like a pretty arcane technical dispute, but um, obviously one that can have some pretty far-reaching impacts, not just within the SEC, but in plenty of other federal agencies that use similar administrative mechanisms um, maybe we could get into some of the the briefs here for cer um, there's a bit of an interesting quirk in that the, the parties to the suit the the petitioner Lucia and the SEC now are sort of on the same side when it comes to this question um, because with the change of the presidential administration the Department of Justice switched its its position here, um, but focusing on, on the I guess the the petitioners' um, brief for, for Sir, what were their main arguments as as to why SEC ALJs are officials uh, pursuant to the Appointments Clause?
1: Lucia really uh, glommed onto the logic of the majority ruling in Bandemir, which was that the SEC ALJs are inferior officers because they exercise this significant discretion in conducting bench trials, which involve making evidentiary and other rulings that shape the administrative record, just like a federal court trial judge might do, and that these SEC ALJs issue initial decisions that become final, ultimately, in, uh, at least as presented, uh, the statistics he presented on appeal in 90% of cases. Sure. Okay, so Now, the, uh, the SEC... The SEC, uh, you know, again, as you noted, in somewhat a strange twist, actually ag- agreed with the uh, with the petitioner here that the ALJs are in fact inferior officers. It's a odd uh, moment when the government switches course in its its briefing to the Supreme Court um, and basically then asks the Supreme Court to opine on. Uh, whether there are really restrictions associated with the appointment, but also the removal of SEC administrative law judges so that the SEC can have guidance on how to proceed as a practical matter. And it's, it's that actually that second part there, um, the removal um, and the fact that the Department of Justice, which is representing the SEC in this matter, um, asked for clarification from the court on that issue that has some commentators questioning, you know, what exactly is going on here? Is there a setup from the executive whereby um, they may wish to be able to have the power to have presidential appointees effectively be able to remove administrative law judges that they don't, you know, like the decisions from?
0: Sure. Maybe i uh, spin that out a, a bit further so as the question potentially on the table that uh, removal maybe without cause for these sort of folks could be uh, a possibility if the court rules a a certain way?
1: Certainly conceivable that that could happen. And and I think it doesn't take much to come up with a a hypothetical scenario there that is potentially, um, at least to, to some people, a bit alarming and troubling that you could have a situation that um, in an administrative agency where the heads of the agency are appointed by the president, you know that in effect the president could reach down through its uh, his or her appointees and say, I, "I don't like the judicial decisions that are coming out of this administrative law court. You should remove that that uh that judge." and I think that would probably run counter to a lot of people's conceptions of what judges really should be doing or, or, or being subjected to.
0: Trevor uh, Burrus One note, when, it's, one, it's one thing when the government is an, an amicus and switches positions, but you're obviously uh, a, a party and, and vacates the, the, the side. So when that does happen, the Supreme Court um, they in, invites someone else to sort of take up the mantle and, and argue that side?
1: yeah that although i I think really here you're in just this very unique situation where the parties are just are are quite aligned on the core issue. Now I think probably from Lucia's perspective, he's very interested in saying that having the Supreme Court say that uh um, these people were um, unconstitutionally appointed and therefore the uh the remedies that were levied against him should be thrown out. Um, and perhaps this case retried by a constitutionally appointed officer.
0: One one thing also to to flag here: after the Department of Justice filed its brief, essentially agreeing with Lucia, the SEC, in what seems to sort of be an attempt to, to moot this appeal, went about kind of a officially, formally declaring its ALJs appointed by the the Commission, trying to sort of ratify their their initial appointment and make it. Uh, official and make them officers um, uh, officially. Uh, obviously, it did not seem to to moot the the appeal. Cert was still granted. Um, but tell me a, a bit about that that move and and what it was meant to do, and kind of whether there's some argument as to whether the commission could even do that if these appointees had been put in their positions sort of outside of the proper uh, provisions. If ratifying them was even a possibility
1: when the litigation uh, first commenced on these matters a few years ago and the cases started percolating through the courts, I think some people thought, well, can't the SEC just get rid of this issue and and ratify the appointment of these administrative law judges that went through the normal OPM, Office of Personnel Management, hiring process? Um, I think the the Reaction from the SEC was, well, it's really not that simple um, because potentially that could call into question the the uh, legitimacy of past rulings. So um, I'm not sure that the um, the government was trying to moot the appeal, given the fact that they have asked for clarification from the court um, regarding this uh, the implications for the selection and removal concept that I, I mentioned earlier, um, and and I'm not really sure that there's anything that prohibited the SEC commissioners from retroactively ratifying these appointments. Um, it's almost as if these people just, you know, showed up and were kind of, you know, given the, the uh, I, you know, given the thumbs up that they could continue work by the commissioners and the commissioners say, yes, we ratify your hiring through the formal appointment process. Mm -hmm. Um, And it sounds sort of rather uh, formulaic and technical, but um, I I think what the, what the SEC is essentially trying to do here, or really the DOJ um, is trying to do here is, I believe try to dull the impact on past rulings by by doing this before the court has um, has the issue in their hands and, and says what needs to happen.
0: With both of the the parties to this suit seeming to converge on on the same side of the question presented, is, is the outcome on that point? Do you think pretty pretty certain? And if that's the case, I, I guess we've gotten into it a bit. What what is up in the air. What's left to be determined, um, and is is there any thought that this ruling could sweep a bit more more broadly and have impacts on just the practice of using ALJs more and more generally here within the SEC or in other agencies?
1: Well, I, I think all of that is potentially up for grabs, and um, certainly the Supreme Court will sometimes go beyond the questions presented and and delve into an issue in a way that you know, no one even really asked them to delve. (laughs) Um, So I guess first, the the ruling, as we said, could have potentially huge impacts on other agencies. The SEC right now has uh, five ALJs, but certain agencies have hundreds or or even thousands. The Social Security Administration, as I mentioned, has more than 1,500 ALJs um, establishing a process there to ensure the constitutionality of the appointments of those ALJs could well prove to be a considerable undertaking. There are other federal agencies that use ALJs um, extensively including the, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the EPA, um, and then as I mentioned that, that there's also this potential collateral consequence of uh, past a- SEC ALJ decisions being invalidated and that could you know really create a, a enormous backlog of course um, and, and really administrative headache potentially could lead to a lot of actions needing to be filed in federal court um, and I think at this point there's no real clear answer as to whether past decisions by alJs are, are actually still going to be binding and um, whether you know like I said they would need to be retried by the SEC whether they're some sort of appellate process that might be instituted, Um, what's going to happen with pending cases? You know, there are cases that are currently right now um, working their way up towards a hearing before an ALJ, what's going to happen with those? Um, So there's a lot of unanswered questions that kind of go to the the practicalities of, of what it really means that someone being hired was the improper way for them to become an administrative law judge.
0: That does seem like a pretty weighty ramification here uh, if that uh you know is it is it sort of a, a natural follow on if the court does say ds a l j s were uh, officers and this, and so they were appointed the wrong way is it a pretty natural follow that the decisions they've rendered and the ones pending before him would all be put into jeopardy? Is that something that you think would need to be litigated further? Or is it something that the Supreme Court would probably speak to if they did make that initial ruling that they're, they're officers?
1: It would certainly hope that the court would give some level of guidance as to um, what uh, its views are regarding the legitimacy of these, you know, thousands, perhaps tens of thousands uh, past decisions. Um, if they if they don't, it could leave, you know, a situation where, there's enormous um, perhaps you know, emergency petitions being filed. you know, you have to remember that it isn't just simply that a, a decision was entered, you're talking about um, orders involving many millions probably billions of dollars um, in some cases of penalties and disgorgement Um, you know those a lot of those monies have moved in the past what's going to happen to that um, during the pendency of any kind of uncertainty associated with the with these cases and it seems sort of logical that the Supreme Court will try to find a way to preserve um, the the legitimacy of those rulings or, or the um, the final order that was issued. Um, but it's an open question, and, and no one really knows exactly how it's going to come out.
0: Um, but more to the, the general practice, uh, the, the work done by administrative law judges, I mean, the, the question presented is still fairly narrow and sort of cabined as to just what is the right way to uh, appoint them, which, as you say, could have a lot of ca- collateral damage in terms of the decisions uh, such appointed officers have rendered, but but uh, the more general use of ALJs is not really up for uh, grabs in this case, right?
1: Well, it, it's not, although the kind of collateral effect of all of this litigation is that the SEC itself is now being much more thoughtful about what cases do go to federal court, versus go before an ALJ. And so from a, a practical you know, policy perspective, what's actually happening now at the SEC is that um, the Division of Enforcement, um, to the extent it wants to proceed in the administrative law form, um, it has to actually justify to the commission, which again is the authorizer of the actual action that, the, that gets brought, that's to justify to the commission why it should go to the administrative law form um, versus federal district court. Um, We mentioned at the outset that uh, a few years ago after Dodd-Frank, the division of enforcement started bringing insider trading cases in the administrative law form which you know never once before had been in that form Um, and so I think now those types of cases are really going back towards being in federal court. And so while while the actual decision here from the Supreme Court isn't probably won't change much of anything about what the SEC does, it it has the litigation has really had a a, a material impact on the choice of form that the SEC pursues.
0: As both parties like Lucia and those sort of similarly situated wouldn't necessarily say that's A bad thing, considering um, what what they've called sort of a home field advantage enjoyed by the SEC over the past few years. Um, On on that point, I guess a couple things. Do you, you know, having having spent time in that agency, and you know, I I don't expect you to 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 doubt the um, conscientiousness with which the SEC treats due process. But do you think there's any sort of meat to that bone? Whether it, you know, whether the deck the deck could be stacked against folks. Um, brought into administrative proceedings as opposed to if enforcement matters were brought before courts. And then if um, you know, the the court rules that the ALJs are um, officers, does that functionally change? You said, okay, that, that would probably incentivize the SEC to bring fewer cases in that forum. But if all that's required is that the commission has to sign off on the judges they have, um, it doesn't seem like it would necessarily change the, I guess the the policy concern of the the home field advantage. Um, and what, what are your thoughts on that point?
1: The, when you think about the, this question of fairness associated with the administrative uh, law form and and whether there's a home field advantage. I think that that there's an easy kind of surface-level argument to make there. I, I gave that sort of exaggerated metaphor of the ALJ having lunch with the lead trial lawyer from the Division of Enforcement the day before the the hearing starts in the SEC cafeteria. I mean, I think that's a that's a pretty surface-level assessment. I think these ALJs are. Um, you know, committed jurists who are, who want to be fair. Um, in fact, two of the more recent appointees, or I guess now appointees, but previously employed ALJs um, actually went the way, you know, opposite the division of enforcement um, somewhat regularly over the last couple of years. I think really where people got hung up on this was just how kind of quick the the docket would move in the Administrative proceeding, and that the respondent um, who perhaps had been subjected to years of investigation, the division enforcement had issued all sorts of third party subpoenas, taken testimony from as many people as it wanted, then would file an action, and the case would go to trial in a matter of months, whereby. A normal federal court civil litigation could take years you would get through the motion to dismiss you'd have discovery and all that summary judgment before before any trial and so while the litigation was pending the SEC actually adjusted its rules of practice and um, cases now have there's more of a time lag between filing and uh, and the actual beginning of an administrative proceeding. The respondent has some limited ability to collect discovery. There's some other kind of tools that the SEC has, has I think, tried to implement to um, really, I, I, I actually think, try to make the, the form look more fair um, and not have people feel like they're showing up in some kangaroo court, which is what I think a lot of commentators saw these administrative law forms to be. Um, Look, I I think at the end of the day, the SEC, much like any federal agency, doesn't really want to be in the business of um, running a form that people think is is fundamentally unfair. Um, And so this this process, I think it would be fair to say, has sort of helped to... um, alleviates some of the issues people had in in a somewhat indirect way. As I said, the fairness due process arguments didn't get much traction in the courts. But I think there has been that kind of policy change I referred to, where the enforcement division now takes steps to justify its choice of form. The rules of practice have been amended. um, and, And perhaps we'll see that form go back to being a bit more bit more like what it used to be, where it was really more of a a form where um, people in the regulated industries ended up in. Now, you know, another thing I'd point out about these ALJs is that they are um, essentially federal securities law specialists, Mm -hmm. and there's a bit of kind of be careful what you wish for um, in terms of the arguments regarding the fairness of the form, because you know there you may you push to have your case heard by a federal um district court judge who perhaps has no familiarity with the federal securities laws, and that may create its own um, set of obstacles or you know federal civil litigation uh can be very expensive um because discovery is expensive and it takes more time and you know there's kind of pros and cons here, but i think I think that the overall litigation will help to make the form really be a, just a more effective tool and um, and uh, um, more of a refined tool as well.
0: Okay. Uh, maybe just one last one. This case really hasn't taken a shape too much yet. We haven't obviously heard arguments or I don't think even the, the briefs on the merits are filed yet. But do you have a sense here at the, at the outset what might be kind of the, the likeliest scenario or what might be some scenarios to, to look out for in terms of the outcome?
1: Well, it, it... – It certainly seems like the the tide would move towards um, the court finding that these ALJs are inferior officers. It would be somewhat kind of odd if you really step back and think about it for the court to go the opposite direction of the two litigants before it, Um, also factoring in that point about the SEC having already ratified the appointment of these these individuals. I I think I think the hope is that the SEC or I should say the Supreme Court is um, mindful of these collateral impacts and and really does issue some good, strong guidance language in its ruling regarding what the prior rulings what's going to happen with those prior rulings. And also, is the case going to be limited to a particular type of ALJ? you know, SEC ALJs. There may be differences between them and and other kind of um, functionally similar hearing officers and other administrative agencies. And so, I think this is certainly a situation where there could be a lot of questions that could come out of a Supreme Court ruling, um, or hopefully, um, perhaps no questions. Perhaps the court is is sweeping and expansive and and very clear. Um, but either way, I think uh, that that to me. I would ho- certainly hope to see clear guidance from the court regarding what's going to happen with those prior rulings.
0: Sure. Yeah, this is one of many, many cases, I think, in which the uh, we have folks looking for some some guidance from the Supreme Court this term. There's a, a lot of big ones here coming down the pipe in the next few months. Uh, we'll leave it there for now. Peter Altman, thanks very much for helping us uh, discuss through Lucia versus SEC. Uh, appreciate your time.
1: You're welcome, and thanks for having me.
0: And with that, our show for January 26th, 2018, is complete. Thanks again to my guest, Peter Altman, and thanks to you for tuning in. It's much appreciated. Brian Cardale, I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.